So I think in this new world, there's antennae and sensitivity around your markets. And we want that world around us to represent the diversity that's already there. Inclusion is an organization's duty to provide a fair and open environment to do their best work. You know, we believe inclusion is a basic human right. Welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my guest today is Raj Telsiani. Raj has become one of the UK's leading figures in executive search, interim management, workforce planning, and diversification. He's got over 20 years experience moving the dial on leadership, talent, and diversity, and is the author of Diversity and Inclusion for Leaders, Making a Difference with the Diversity Headhunter. Raj is the CEO of Green Park, which is an award-winning recruitment consultancy. They're listed by Recruiter Magazine as the fifth fastest growing recruitment company in the UK, with revenues over 90 million pounds, compound annual growth of 58.8%, and they were the only recruitment company to make the Sunday Times fast track list in 2019. Interestingly, they're a company that has really put diversity and inclusion at the core of their message and at their service. So I'm super excited to catch up with Raj today and discuss the secrets behind the success of Green Park, particularly the rapid growth they've experienced, and also talk about the role we recruiters can play in creating a world with more diversity, particularly in leadership positions. Raj, welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to be uh, included. All right. Well, I'm excited that you agreed to do this. So Raj, Take me back to the beginning, like the early days, you and Steve, is it Steve Baggy? Yeah, Steve Baggy. Yeah. Where, so you were just starting out and like just paint a picture of, uh, for me of how you got from there to where you are today, which because it's quite an extraordinary growth that you've experienced. Thank you. That, that's kind of you. I mean, I think our journey in many ways is very similar to anybody who does a recruitment startup. We were in an organization. We thought we could do things differently. We thought that the level of service, intelligence, insight in the people that we competed with then provided a competitive advantage. And we wanted to work for an organization who accepted diversity and inclusion in their actions, not just in their aspirations and in their marketing and in how they um, tried to attract and retain staff, but they actually put it in the middle of what they did. So we couldn't find one. So we started one in the 4th of August, 2006, which sometimes feels like yesterday and other times (laughs) feels like a lifetime ago. All right. Amazing. So I know you're saying you started just as many other startup recruitment companies do, but very few achieve the the growth that you've had, what do you feel have been the key milestones along that journey that have facilitated that growth? So much of it is personal and it's often the things that mean something to you personally as a leader or as a leadership team that help you to build that resilience and commitment and the kind of madness you really need in the startup. So When we started from, I think, the day after we started, you know, we had a client call um, and say, are you out of your restrictive covenants? We said, yes, but we have no office. We have no infrastructure. We have no mechanism. And he said, well, you can either stay in your pajamas or you can come and see me. I've got a job for you. So I um, got the bus 
that was our first client two days after our restricted covenants finished. Now, that client waiting for us gave us a bit of confidence. Um, in that first period, we went from nothing to two and a half million. And the, the, that first year, the way we managed to grow that quickly was partially we took external finance. And I have you know, my indebted gratitude to those people who backed us at the beginning, who allowed us to buy them out many years later at just about twice their investment. But they were really helpful. And what they said in that first year was, you know, what you need to do is you need to trade. Don't get analysis paralysis. Don't start thinking of taking over the world. Go and find a customer who either thinks like you, we couldn't do that, who either really, really needs you because you've got unique service, we couldn't do that, or who you just get. And you can get in there and you can build the capital of that. And, and our customer in the beginning was Transport for London. You know, they were a really important, vital customer. And as a minority-owned business, they took a chance on us in that first year that I think lots of other big firms wouldn't. But we had the skills and we competed and we managed to build a little team for them. So that was really important that someone took a chance with us. But then we probably by through fear or accident, we over-serviced the backside out of that account. I mean, we were on site before being having people on site were was you know trendy. We were in coffee rooms. We were doing everything we could about building a talent pool externally and bringing some relationships and friendships internally. Then we had a good run of growth, mainly through interim management, and we hired some really talented, raw individuals, many of whom, most of whom actually now have their own business. Um, some have grown significantly, some are lifestyle businesses, but um, it was that kernel or that hardcore of people who kind of came from similar backgrounds to us that we were able to develop quickly and give an opportunity to um, build personal brands. Now, um, two of those, Neil Lupin and Joe Sweetland, are still with us, but the others have gone on to different things. And when we lost some of those, that I think was a really important bridge we had to cross because there is a time when you're having a lot of what you feel is success um, you feel that like you've got momentum, you know, you feel an extra foot taller when you're walking to the office and then your people leave you. And some of them left and said, I want my name over the door, did the best hand handovers and, you know, I'm grateful to their profession to this day. And others were absolute idiots. And I don't think that's any different than anybody else. You, know, you get to that stage where you still want it to be a family, but other people look at it as a job. So that was a big learning point for us to not to try not to take that too personally, to try and let people leave well, to try and take a longer view of it. Then we had a period where we couldn't grow. We were stuck in that kind of 20 to 25 million pound bracket, which for us was, you know, our expectations. But once you're there, you just feel there's opportunity. And what we had is we had, you know, we took good advice, but we couldn't, we didn't have the management skills to deliver it and it wasn't authentic to us. So the good advice was, you know, professionalize, do things in a way that other firms do, the firms that you might aspire to be to. So in, in those, in that time frame, we look at the Shrek firms, we look at Odgers, we looked at those top and second tier search firms and go, wow, wouldn't we like to be like them? So we hired people like them and we managed people like them and we did our best for about a year. And it was awful. The staff hated it. The clients said, where have you gone? Um, so we had to sit the whole business down and say, look, I've made, as chief executive, I've made a terrible mistake here. You know, I did it for the right reasons. 
I took the right advice, I did the right planning, but it's just not us, you know, and I can't carry it off. So if you want me to continue as chief exec, then, you know, we're going to have to do a U-turn on this. And that was, again, a massive learning point for me that although you feel as a leader, your business is going to break, actually businesses and people are really resilient. And that meant we, we lost some really good people, very, you know, big company people. And of course, those people don't get jobs very quickly. So it took them nine months a year to get a job because we didn't want to kick anyone out. And in that time, of course, they're in the market saying, you know, they said they were going to do this. They actually done this, you know, and it was really difficult for our brand. So we came out of that period bruised. I think we would, in hindsight, we'd like to say we were focused, but really we were scared. We didn't know what was next. When we looked really deeply into our motivation, we said, well, we set this up to get people to think differently about talent. We set this up to make diversity and inclusion something a bit more meaningful than having someone from short, as having someone from Oxford and Cambridge on the same shortlist. So when we decided that a good customer for us was somebody who wanted more diversity but didn't know how to get it, wasn't as inclusive as they thought, did do recruitment from a mixture of internal and external sources, and people had a different perception of their brand in different places of the marketplace, we thought in that intersection, that's where we should create a need. And since we concentrated on that, and of course, it's impossible to underestimate the amount of luck we've had. That's when we've grown from 30 to 90 million in, in, in the last three, three and a half years. And that has been a wild ride, one where all of the problems you think you'll have are completely different from the ones you've got. And one where you learn the difference between sales and effectively trying to manage a more sustainable business. But that diversity and inclusion uh, DNA has been there since day one. And we released the War for Diverse Talent in, I think, 2008. But it's only when we made the commitment to look at the world through that intersection between brand, recruitment and diversity and make the investments in uh, technology and research to back us up. That's really what has driven our ability to hire, retain better talent but also to be more relevant and give us a platform to be more challenging when we see bad behaviours and poorly constructed mandates in our customers. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Since diversity was one of the key themes there and it's part of your DNA, I read on your website actually that in 2019, Green Park placed a new diverse leader on a board every eight days and your goal is to make it daily by 2025, like every day you're placing a diverse leader. Can we explore, like, what does that really mean? Like when you we're talking about diversity inclusion and being a diverse employer, uh, let's say, how do you define that? And then more importantly, how do you actually achieve it rather than just pay? Like, I think a lot of big companies and a lot of recruiters as well pay lip service to this idea, but... How can we actually implement it in a meaningful way? Well, a lot of these ideas are probably more thoughtfully articulated in, in my book. But the answer to your question, because I think it's important to answer people's question, is when we talk about placing a diverse leader on a board, we're talking about somebody who is um, an ethnic minority, a woman, or uh, has a, a physical and open disability. So, of course, there are other forms of diversity, but, you know, it's not my business to paint by numbers. My business within our board practice is to ensure that a customer 
gets a broader choice from Green Park than they'd get from under Shrekford. Now, how we do that is, is nothing to do with identification. People can find diversity. What we see is the economic model of executive search firms in particular, and those people who do board practices, means they place their mates. It means they place the people who are less risky. It means they don't have to challenge what risk means to a customer. And there is a very comfortable regurgitation of very um, experienced people who understand governance, who understand fiduciary duties, who look and feel the part. Now, our assertion is that old form of corporate governance is still very important. But, you know, our clients want someone who can bring something to the table around DNR, around climate change, around sustainability, around cybercrime. So they want somebody who is relevant to the problems they'll face in the future. Now, what we've managed to do that has helped us place, on average, 35% ethnic minorities in board roles against a national average of close to six, over 50% of women in board roles against a national average in the mid-40s. So what has really helped is being able to challenge the customer. What has really helped is our algorithm that has been mapping executive talent by gender and race for seven years. In the FTSE 100, we look at over over 10,000 jobs a year. Public life, we look at over 5,000 jobs. In the charities and civil society, we look at over 2,000 jobs. So what we're effectively doing is looking at trends uh, based on where it's more attractive for women to work at senior level, where isn't, why is that? So we are a little bit further forward because our idea of pipelining isn't a save list on LinkedIn like many of my competitors. And at the end, they go, oh, we need a couple of different faces in here. I reject that as tokenism. I reject that in many ways, but it's also indicative of a high level of institutional prejudice within the executive recruitment agency. And sometimes that's bias that is subconscious. Sometimes it's institutional bias around risk. But more than anything else, it's just bloody laziness. It's people who have no lived experience thinking they still have to do women and black people a favour. It's just nonsense. So I don't, I'm not interested in that. And no one in my firm is interested in that. But that makes us, for some people, very challenging, for some people, difficult to deal with. So we know that we're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. But we do do what we can to contribute to something more than just making money. And in our case, we believe that the interventions we have in our search process, the relationships we build from our annual BAME 100 and the 650 that we track behind that, help us to understand the world in a different way. Not better, not worse. We're a fraction of the size of most of the competitors that we have for that kind of board work. But it does mean that when we come to the party, we come with hard data. We come with a bridge into parts of the market that other people don't have. And we come with a commitment to say, well, if you want more difference and you won't do anything differently, then, you know, we can't put in what your own governance leaves out. So, again, for some institutions, that is like kryptonite. They want someone they can give orders to. They want someone who will find someone who looks different but thinks the same. They want someone who is in every way less risky. And then at the end, if they're black, it's, you know, that's great. Or if they're Asian, it's great. Or if they're a woman, it's great. And I just don't believe that. I believe in the best candidate. But I think unless you challenge your customer into what best looks like in the new world, then why the hell would they give you 30% of the fee? You know, you haven't earned anything. You haven't done anything they couldn't do on LinkedIn. So part of that is passion. A lot of that is training. The integration between 
us and our diversity consultancy now really helps organisations not just build advocacy, but also deal with underlying disparities in outcomes. But what really made the difference is at the beginning, when no one knew who we were, we went to real campaigners and we built it bottom up. So now people can go to some of the most challenging people uh, and campaigners on race or gender or gender reassignment or any of the protected characteristics. And they might say, yeah, we like Green Park. They might say, we don't like Green Park, but no one will say we're not for real. And we did that because it was in our value set. We had no idea that the DNI marketplace would, as you know, would grow in such a way that it did. Apparently, there's now almost 15,000 people who are employed to work in diversity and inclusion in the UK. And I'm sure at least 300 of them know what they're doing. You talked about challenging your customer. Could you say a little more about what that really involves on a practical basis? Now, you can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm. And you know, there is no, in our view, there's no um, substitute for good manners in business. But I'm not an order taker in the market. And what that means is when we discuss something with a client, if in our integrity or our lived experience or our market knowledge or our data, what they're asking for doesn't stack up and we leave that room with a piece of paper with a signature, then actually we've disrespected our own brand. And if you don't respect your own ability to help a customer, how on earth can you expect them to do anything apart from feed you transactions? Which means that the next person who does that transaction quicker or faster or with a better embedded relationship, you're nowhere. So our model means that we have to be honest brokers. We do sales. Of course we do. You know, every recruitment firm needs to do sales. But the best sales is creating the conditions where someone wants to buy from you before you have to go through your, your unique selling point. So I think there is a massive thing about going to, going to the customer and saying, look, this is what we know already. Not in that traditional, um, you know, top tier Shrek firm, here are the best six people in the world, only we can get them for you. No, that doesn't work. And we're not at that level. We are a 100 to 300K brand and a little bit above that in our board practice, but we don't compete with the Shreks on that you know, big international scale, although we do do, we did work in 55 countries last year, but that is all through contacts and friends here. We are a UK firm, we're proud to be so, although we do some work internationally, it's only from our friends and supporters here. But what that means is our orientation has to both be humble because we don't have offices in 40 countries. We have to get over ourselves because we are solution providers and for a business of our size, we need to retain agility and resilience and that hunger to fight for each piece of business and to deliver it in a way that makes a customer feel special. But at the same time, we can't compete without having a true identity. And you know, our true identity is one that allows us to represent our values of courage, rigor, empathy, energy, and diversity in a way that allows our customers to get a benefit from it. You know, it's not about our navel gazing, it's about our ability to compete and give them a more thoughtful, beneficial choice of candidates. Many of those candidates who they wouldn't get out otherwise, and they wouldn't get them otherwise because the economic model of our competitors is purely time and materials. So why would they spend 60 hours when they can do that shortlist in 40? I hope it's not too complicated an answer, but I think what I'm trying to say is your values and your behaviours and how you set your firm up to solve problems is totally representative in how you can compete. 
if you can't do that, then your competition is reduced to things that the barriers to entry are too low to build a sustainable growth stream around. Awesome. I'm interested in diving into your values in a, in a second, Raj. When you're taking a mandate from a client and you're challenging the way that they've approached this in the past and advising them as to how you can help them to create a more diverse shortlist, they may agree to that up front. But then when it comes to pulling the trigger and making an offer, do you find that they like that challenging approach, does that, do you have to maintain that throughout the hiring process or? I think the point here is you don't want to be in confrontation. You want to be in true partnership and true partnership, like any meaningful relationship means that both parties respect each other, but we have to earn our respect. So the point is not to be forcing the customer to do anything they don't want to do. The point is to help the customer look at the world in a way that gives them a broader choice. They're still going to get the usual suspects. But if we prove that somebody who they wouldn't have looked at is higher against their own competency and scoring matrix and they don't shortlist them, then it's really tricky. If there's disparities in how those people are treated, then it's our duty as Green Park to call it out. And I'll give you some examples. Now, I had one very high-profile board appointment that I was helping one of our senior people with. And on that panel to make the decision, there was chief executives of FTSE 100s, there were members of um, a religious institution. There were people from the uh, highest echelons of government. And there was the last four, and they were deciding who should go through to the last two. And, you know, they asked me what my opinion was. And, you know, I had to say, when you talk about the two men on the final shortlist, you know, you are talking about fidgery duties. You're talking about ability to influence at the highest level. You are talking about gravitas you are talking about you know, a number of things. When you talk about the two women on the shortlist, one of whom was appointed after this intervention, you're making it a bloody popularity contest. So you have to, you know, you have to compare apples with apples, or at least you have to be consistent with how you do it. And you know, two members of that panel were outraged, and in the end, the person running the panel goes, actually, he's right. You know, if you look at the reality of this, it's not that we're... You know, prejudice or bias but how we have looked at this appointment is different and that's the value that i want green park to bring it doesn't always work that way we recently had a head of recruitment working for um, a group who said why there's so many ethnic minorities on the shortlist to one of my consultants my consultants and this was for a big group of non-executive directorships so it was you know let's say 15 plus roles uh not the shortlist the long list so the client, so the, the, the consultant obviously came to me and said, look, you know, I don't, what do I do with this? I've never had this before. Who tells you that there are too many qualified ethnic minorities on, on a shortlist? You know, that's what people come to us for, isn't it? So I said, well, you just have to go back to them in writing and ask how much they'd like to reduce the ethnicity of a shortlist. By. Right. <laughs> Good because, because we've given you the best people we've found, and it happens that 40% of them are ethnic minorities, but they fit your criteria. We've interviewed them. We've referenced them. We've done some security checks where, we, you know, not security checks, we've done some background checking. And these are the best, whatever it was, 32 people, right? So what would you like us to reduce the ethnicity by? And, you know, it was a pretty difficult conversation. And in the end, what can you do? You have to either walk away or they have to pay you to do what they've agreed to do within the contract. So that relationship and that, setting up your stall at the beginning, any 
recruiter or headhunter or head renter will tell you, you know, the quality of the brief is where it's at. You know, people who are still doing um, job specs on the mecha fag packets, you know, this is not the kind of world that we operate in now. There's, there's too much scrutiny and actually candidates are really smart and sceptical and they want to know why. Why me? Why, why this next? What's, you know, what's the benefit? And increasingly that benefit is not about reward, it's about their place in the world, their personal brand, their ability to contribute to something. And for those of your listeners who are really sceptical, flip that the other way. How much more difficult is it to recruit for a business with a crappy reputation than it is for one of the good guys? Absolutely. Makes total sense. And by the way, for our listeners outside the UK, a fag packet is a box of cigarettes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so can I ask about the values? Creed, which stands for courage, rigor, empathy, energy, and diversity. How did you identify those values and how do you apply them in a tangible way within the business? There's two parts to that question. The business chose the values. As with all founders, you know, you think the values that you put in the business are correct and, you know, you stick by them and everything. And the business came to me and said, you know, we're not that 30 million pound company. We need to look at things differently in terms of how we act with each other, in terms of how we set up conditions to trade with our markets, in terms of our orientation, you know, we want to move on. So they uh, delivered the values. It was very democratic. There was a lot of work that went into it. You know, I think courage is internal and external. We want people to not talk about bringing their whole self to work, but to bring their whole self to work. You know, but part of that is the courage to tell somebody, you know, you're supposed to be doing this. Your customer wants this. This is the standard that we require. And of course, in what we do, we have to be courageous with candidate client feedback because actually, you know, you don't want to be that firm that is giving people stupid vanilla feedback when they come second on two jobs and the, the, the issue is, or your perception of the issue is clear. So courage is really important to us. I think as we started to continue to do more complex work and have longer-term multi-year relationships, that idea of rigour is extremely important. And I think any of your listeners who are in executive search will understand how much more rigorous your customers are now much of what used to be in our domain around information is in the public domain. So being able to add value through a process, but also having that rigor of real business curiosity and wanting that deeper understanding of your customers' needs, it's easy to say, you know, you've got to do it every day because you're the best as well. Energy, you know, I don't want to work with boring people. I'm sure boring people don't want to work with me. There's nothing wrong with boring people. I hope to be one myself in the future. But right now, you know, we've got things to do. We've got a cause to fight for, and that causes more than our P&L. So that energy and that self-motivation, um, I think, is important that people find a way of connecting with that. That's, that's real for them, but that gives the business the returns it requires, both in terms of our mission, our purpose, but also our customer expectation. So that's really important. Empathy. You know, I don't think you can get anywhere in this world now without empathy. You know, I'm not myself. It's something that I've had to learn, it's something that I try to be mindful of. And it's something that people here are really, really good at calling out with me when I'm not as empathetic as I should be. And I don't mind that. I'm interested in being good, not feeling that I look good. So as a leader, you have to humble yourself to the needs of your organization. I'm OK 50 percent of the time, 50 percent of the time I need help. But the reality is. People are scared when they move jobs, regardless of whether you know what package they're on. People are nervous when they're in between contract assignment. 
Consultants who work independently take a great deal of risk when they go into statements of work. And if you are moving sectors or you're from a different background or you've experienced prejudice before, you can multiply all of that anxiety. So if we're not empathetic to our candidates, then what value can we create to our clients? Because all we're doing then is identifying and introducing and any people can do that themselves. So I think in this new world, which is um, volatile, uncertain, et cetera, et cetera, now that those antennae and sensitivity around your markets are for us, and of course, we don't have all the answers, but for us, that's kind of one of the things we want in our DNA, you know, people who have got their antennae up all the time. It doesn't mean that they have to panic or overreact, but they have to be curious about the world around them. And we want that world around us to represent the diversity that's already there. If diversity is the breadth of people and the breadth of experience and whether it's acquired or inherited the characteristics that shape someone's lived experience, then you know inclusion is an organization's duty to provide a fair and open environment for them to do their best work. You know, we believe inclusion is a basic human right. So that colors what we do. And that means that some organizations, particularly in financial services and professional services, they can't stand us. You know, we don't want to be a conduit for great talent into leaky buckets. You know, people don't listen. People don't want to change or people are too conceited to look at their own data and say we should do something about it. Then, you know, they can find better people to do their search than us. They can find better people to do their interim than us. And they can damn well find better people to do their diversity consulting than us. Amazing. Great answer. I like it. You said something which surprised me, Raj, which is that you feel comfortable with your team members calling you out on the values. For instance, empathy was the one that you you gave the example of. Most CEOs would not endorse or be comfortable with that. How do you balance that kind of in the culture where people do feel free to hold each other to the values without fear that it's going to affect their relationship with their boss or whatever? It's difficult, but I'm only CEO here until they find someone better. So from my perspective, you know, I look at it as an owner and as a founder. You know, today I've got the top job. You know, if someone grew up through the ranks or we found someone externally could do a better job, I'd very happily go and do another job internally because I love what I do. The reality is culture is only a representation of what people do. You know, you can write down anything you want on some values you can try really hard to get people to see the world in the same way, but they don't. And it's that smorgasbord of opinion and activity and backgrounds that create your culture. You can do something in the recruitment world or in any business to try and guide that, but it is very dependent on the leaders. Mm. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to create leaders or people who are cultural, disproportionately important to culture, regardless of where they are in the company and what their job title is. Because ultimately, some people just have more influence. Some people just work in a way that other people follow. And some people have just got that energy and drive. And some people have just got that emotional and cultural intelligence. And that doesn't come with how old you are, how much money you are, or where you sit. So, you know, when the head of the CFO practice came in and called me out and said, look, you actually did this, made me feel this way, I don't feel great about that. Then it's really my, it's really me for me to apologise because actually, you know, he said it. All feedback is a gift if you choose to accept it that way. And in this case, he was actually right. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have done what. I did. 
So I don't have a problem. I don't see it as a weakness saying I made a mistake. I make mistakes all the time. Anyone who works here or who has worked here in the past will probably back that up. <laughs> but I'm a bit over myself. I, I think that if you make a mistake, you're stronger by saying I made a mistake than you are by pretending that the world's wrong and you're right. So mm. I don't have a problem with that. Hopefully that sets an example. But I don't want to portray myself, you know, as a super cultural, intelligent person. I'm just a guy trying to grow a business against, you know, a broader purpose of getting people to think differently about talent. And I just think that what works for me is to have a more open, respectful relationship with my colleagues. And that doesn't mean I'm a pushover, I don't think, um, but it does mean that if they want to talk to me about something, then they're going to get the real me and not a corporate version of me, et cetera. So some people find that difficult because... I'm not as consistent a chief executive as you might find in a bigger company, but I'm cool with that. You know, I'm okay with being Raj. And hopefully the people here feel the same way. All right. Fantastic. Raj, talk about your book then. Is this book available now? I think the book's available on Amazon. Yes. It started as a bit of fun, really. All right. Yeah. But it sort of grew into something when you start taking things seriously. Of course, they get a bit of weight and momentum of their own. Fantastic. And is that the website diversityheadhunter.co.uk? Is that where people can find out about it? or They can find out about it there. I'm sure there's something on the Green Park website, but I think it's available on Amazon. Okay. So we'll definitely mention that in the show notes and, and when we promote this podcast. Raj, one more question is, I mean, you've mentioned a few of the challenges in you know growing pains, if you like. I know that you were around during the last big recession, as was I, and it was, it was not fun at all. The reason I'm asking this question is because as we record, then coronavirus is what everyone's talking about, and there's a projected slowdown in the economy. What lessons did you learn from the last recession that you think will enable you to steer Green Park through the coming one whenever, you know, whenever that uh, arises? I've managed through three recessions with different degrees of success and sophistication. The things that I think are really important in the uncertainty we face now for the first time around a a health, such as severe health threat, is um, you can only prepare your business for a certain number of case scenarios. And the underlying thing that looks at all of those outcomes is what do you stand for what your customer's going to want from you, uh, how's that going to change? Hopefully it doesn't change too much, but the volume of what they want from you might reduce. But critically, in these periods of enormous stress and challenge, how are you creating the conditions for you to take more market share when that market comes? Because I think the people who sit there and wait for the market to come back, you know, they might go from 5% to 5%. But the people who proactively make a decision based on where they think it will be in 18 months, those are the people who will drive growth. And you know, there's as much chance of getting that wrong as it is of getting it right. We've done both. Um, But we believe that it's better to spend time with your customers empathizing with their fears because then you'll understand their markets. And I think where we are at the moment is totally uncharted territory because ultimately a lot of work can be done from home But the idea of recruiting people at a senior level who are then working at home, in the UK, we are not as advanced in the gig economy as in other parts of the world. So as with everybody else, we're just going to try and stick to what's important to us, 
you know, if that means revenues go down, at least we'll be able to look in the mirror and say, well, we're still us. Raj, on that note, I will let you go to your next appointment. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks for being on The Resilient Recruiter. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. Be sure to check out the full show notes at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. And please consider subscribing so that you receive every new episode directly to your phone. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.